0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com.
1: I coach a lot of students, and I don't know if it's a mistake, but it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Really isn't it? It's not a no money down process. You need to have some capital, or you need to have friends that have capital. You don't have to have it, you have to have friends or investors.
2: Welcome to the best ever show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast.
0: Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff.
2: Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest. Randy Langenderfer. Randy is joining us from Houston, Texas. He is the president of InvestArc Properties, which is a syndication business focused on multifamily properties. Randy is a GP on 1,100 units and an LP on over 3,000 units. He also works full-time as chief compliance and audit officer at Baylor College of Medicine. Randy, thank you for joining us and how are you today?
1: I'm doing well, Ash. Thanks so much for the opportunity to be here. been following you guys for a long time and feel like I'm kind of going to Mecca here to the Holy Land to be on your show, so it's a privilege.
2: We're very glad to have you here, my friend. Randy, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now?
1: I'd be happy to, Ash. So, Randy Langender for Houston, Texas Sugar Land, to be specific on the Southwest Corner. I've been in Houston about nine years. I came down here from the Cleveland, Ohio market on a job relocation in 2013. When I got here, I discovered multifamily, fell in love with it because of the non recourse financing aspect of it, and learned the value of syndication and the ability to buy multi-million dollar assets with other people's money is still just strikes me as phenomenally unbelievable. And since then, like you said, I've done several deals and hope to do many more in my remaining useful life. All right. What
2: you just said sounds like you're talking from the very top. How did you get started in real estate?
1: I got started in real estate. I'll try to be brief. This is a half hour alone, but I had a brother-in-law who was an executive for a large regional bank guy. I really trusted and liked a lot and very highly educated MBA, JD, Started a mutual fund for then the regional bank in Cleveland, Ohio. And he came to me after going to an Armando Montaleglos school about house flipping. And he'd spent $20,000 for a week and a boatload of money and said, you got to do this with me. And I said, you're stinking nuts. And so he persuaded to get me comfortable with it. You know, it's all about education, gaining comfort, diminishing your risk by educating yourself and know what you're getting into. And we ended up doing several million dollars with the flips in South Florida. We were hard money lenders. We were living in Cleveland, Ohio, but teamed up with a group out of South Florida. And this is in the 9-10 period when you were picking up houses for 50, 60 cents and a dollar and and able to turn them around and make a handsome profit. And as I said, then I came to Houston for jobs, opportunity, and I got into a a Lifestyles Unlimited here. I went to a Lifestyles Expo and learned a little bit about multifamily and joined there two-day then I ended up going to Brad Sumrock's group in Dallas, Texas. Spent a couple of years there learning the intricacies of syndication, underwriting, legal, et cetera. And today I'm currently in Rod Kalief's mastermind and a coach for Rod Kalief. So I really enjoy that aspect too. So there's a quick nutshell.
2: Yeah. So you guys were doing flips and doing hard money lending. At some point, did you get burned out and you thought there's got to be a better way?
1: Yeah, that point came when I came to Houston with that mindset of hard money lending, thinking, wow, I'm going to the fourth largest metro area in the US and there's got to be tons of opportunity there. And there were, but I came down here and I was relocating with family and new job. And so I was just busier than all get out. And I realized just the time it took for each flip to really scale became very cumbersome and overbearing because you had to learn the market. I was new to the, the Houston market, had to learn the sub market, had to learn who was going to do the flips, study the repair budget and et cetera, et cetera. And I realized there's just got to be an easier way. So that was the flip for me. If I had the time of which I didn't to scale up to 50 or a hundred houses, I could do that in one multifamily and have a property manager sole source that you just picked up the phone and called. And so that was kind of the aha moment Thinking for me when I found that. And then you throw in non-recourse debt. You know, Ash, I can get a, a multi-million dollar loan on a multifamily asset easier than I can get a loan on my primary principal residence.
2: Let's dive into that. I also want to throw this out there. Your background in compliance and audit, did you overanalyze every hard money loan <laughs> that you did? <laughs>
1: did you talk to my wife before this, this show?
2: Listen, I've done hard money loans. And I, I probably should have analyzed them a lot more. I just wrote checks and kind of hoped for the best. And I think most of the time it did not work for the best. <laughs> so I was the opposite.
1: I had probably 10, 15. We did. And only one went bad, the very last one. And I'm still suing the guy today, but an <laughs> answer.
2: <laughs> oh man. All right, so you we, did...
1: More than mess made out. But the answer to your question is you've heard the old expression, ready, aim, fire. So ready, aim, fire. So I'm ready, aim, 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 fire, versus my marketing friends are fire, aim, ready. And I'm not disparaging any marketing guys, just a couple of them that I worked with. that just do the deal, do the deal. So yes, I did overanalyze it first. Yes, I like to think in my corporate job, I talk about risk tolerance and risk mitigation. So I still encourage all my students and listeners, educate yourself. That's the biggest obstacle to risk mitigation is educating yourself. So the first check I wrote, my hand was shaking as I was writing a check. Absolutely. I went and saw the property. I did all the due diligence stuff you're supposed to do. That was a three-hour drive away. And today uh, it becomes much easier, but there's still education involved in trying to talk about risk mitigation.
2: Randy, because of your analytic background, what do you think most apartment syndicators miss in terms of due diligence or analyzing deals?
1: As you said, I'm an MBA CPA uh, in terms of education background. So yeah, I'm very analytical. And I think the analytical mindset, there's engineers and there's computer scientists that have the same disability that I do in terms of overanalyzing. But I think understanding there's many different templates out there for underwriting multifamilies today. And I haven't seen one that's bad. They're just a little bit different from each other. I think it's looking at the assumptions and The one that I always love, Ash, is how many times have you ever heard a syndicator come on your show and say, I underwrite very aggressively? (laughs) Zero. Zero.
2: Even though a lot of times the arrow always moves up and to the right in their models.
1: I've never heard a syndicator in eight years of doing this now say, (laughs) I underwrite even moderately aggressive. So understanding the risk assumptions that go into those spreadsheets, what are the rent gross, what are the expense gross. In Texas, we look a lot of taxes and insurance and what's the rate cap reversion. And you can just get a real quick feel of someone's conservative because one man's conservative is another man's aggressive and vice versa. And I say this is what makes real estate investors is investors have to understand this. Otherwise, they're just speculating. They're just throwing money at a syndicator and say, I know, Randy, here's X dollars. Go invest it. That's fine. But I think to get started, investors and syndicators need to understand the mindset of passive investors. I think that's why I'm a pretty good active or general partner, because I always have that mindset as I started out there.
2: Do people feel like they're in trouble when you start talking around a boardroom?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say in my day job, I don't get invited out for lunch a lot.
2: <laughs> I get
1: it. Hey, Randy, <laughs> let's go to lunch and talk compliance. Uh, doesn't happen too often. Yeah.
2: I love it. Randy, you mentioned non-recourse loans several times for a lot of the best ever listeners. It seems like something that's elusive, something that's only available to the select few. Can you dive into that and what it takes to yeah. obtain a non-recourse loan?
1: Yeah. So the listeners, I'm sure you got everybody out there all over the spectrum. So when I was living in Cleveland, Ohio, I was looking at buying small business. And one of the reasons I really struggled with it was one, you couldn't syndicate it. I had to come up with money on my own. But secondly, it was always a recourse loan. In other words, I was signing personally on the loan. If the loan were to default, they would come take my house, my cars, and they could, et cetera, et cetera. A non-recourse just means that the syndicators or the general partners or the LPs certainly don't have to sign on the note personally. In other words, if the very worst were to happen, let's say everybody moved out of the building and you didn't have any tenants and you defaulted on the loan, you would not be held personally liable. They would take the asset back and you would lose your investment, the bank would, but you would not be held liable. So that is the beautiful thing about multifamily. It's different than retail, commercial, industrial, retail, industrial, commercial, office space, commercial. All those are primarily recourse loans. And that's why a lot of people are focused on. And that's why the banks don't care about my personal, they care about my personal financial statement as a a syndicator, as a general partner. But they're more worried about the cash flow and the debt service coverage ratio, et cetera, et cetera, on the properties that they're underwriting, because in the very worst case, they would take it back.
2: Randy, what kind of down payment do you have to use for non-recourse loans?
1: much more today than you did a year or two ago. <laughs> so as a syndicator agency debt, you try to get 80% leverage and 20% down. And today in the bridge loans arena or variable rate debt, that is the banks are also scared about the inflation rate and stuff. So a lot of times these days, you're finding 65, maybe 70% leverage. That means the bank will lend you 65 or 70% of the purchase price and you have to come up with the rest. And that's why you see syndicators with trying to raise large sums of money and having multiple general partners to come up with that raise. Very few people can raise 10, $15 million on their own, what it takes today. So it needs to be a group of syndicators that does it.
2: Randy, pushing back a little bit and playing devil's advocate. If you're putting down 30, 35% on an asset, why do you care that much about non-recourse? Because What are the chances that you overpaid by 30, 35%? Very little. Yeah.
1: So yes, you're right. But to me, it's just a part of my personal investment strategy that I don't want to sign on a recourse loan as a general partner. I'm in a season of life where I've been fortunate and I just don't want to jeopardize that. So I, I prefer not to. But if I was 30 again and had 30 years in front of me to correct my mistakes, if there was one, then maybe a different story.
2: Well, let's talk about that. What do you wish you would have done differently early in your real estate investing career?
1: You got another whole hour, Ash? Let's go, man.
2: (laughs) Listen, I'm on your time.
1: Well, there's a couple of things. One, I really wish I would have got started earlier. I got married and my wife and I, because I've always had real estate in my crawl, I bought our first house was a duplex. And we rented out half. And then I got busy with work and career growing and family and kids for about 20 years and really didn't come back to it for that amount of time. And so I always had it in my blood. And so the first something I'd tell the 18-year-old Randy is get started earlier. And there's many ways you can get started, right? You can do a single duplex, quads, whatever. You can use other people's money. I wish that when I first started, and I, I mentioned a couple of groups I was in, but I, I really didn't go all into those groups until just recently, Rod Kaliefs, because there's great value in those national educational arms. And there's many others. There's Michael Blanc, there's Jake and Gino's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, across the country that to plug into and probably just invest some money in the educational aspect, because I invested a ton of money in myself, my undergraduate, my graduate degree and certifications, et cetera. So why do most people hesitate in spending money to get education? Because I guess it's human nature. They think it's a ripoff or something. I don't know. That's the second thing. I think I wish I I would have just gone all in earlier. And I found recently success in in co-GPing or joint venturing, whatever you want to say it. And I I just wish I'd, I'd have done that earlier too. General partners, nobody knows everything, has everything there. So there needs to be a team. And so one person may be an underwriter. Another person may be a marketer. Another person may be property management or asset management. The value in bringing a team together. Because I have that mindset, I wanted to start out and do it all and learn it all and understand it all myself. And that's another tendency I fight: self-criticism. Like many, though, I think.
2: Like many. I think many of us go through that same epiphany and we learned some of those hard lessons. It takes two things, in my opinion, to be successful in this business. Education, which you've certainly shadowed and uh, talked to us about. And then the other part is network. So you're amongst all these groups. What else do you do to network?
1: When I first came to Houston nine years ago, my family wasn't here yet. So I simply Googled REI real estate investments. And I was amazed just moving to Houston, there was 13 different that came up on Google. And so I plowed into attending a meetup. Well, then it wasn't a meetup, then it was a group. So the point of it is, is I do a lot of podcasts. I try to be a guest on many and I listen to many. Every time I'm in the car, my wife will get in the car with me and say, Randy, can we not (laughs) listen to a real estate (laughs) podcast? Meetups. There's so many more tools out there today even than there was eight years ago when I got started. So podcasts, meetups, books, I'm now trying to court investors. And so now I spend a lot of time trying to arrange zoom calls or coffee with a potential or seasoned investor that I have to keep the relationship alive because it's still a relationship business, a person to person business versus you can do it. Mass marketing versus Facebook or LinkedIn may help you start to build some connections, but very few people are going to invest $50,000 or more with Ash until they know them and like them and trust them.
0: We'll get back to the show with a first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about.
1: It's no secret
0: that everyone is trying to find a recession-proof investment right now. What if you could invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes of the last 25 years with one of the best teams in the US? Self-storage is that asset class and Reliant Real Estate Management is that team. Reliant Real Estate Management is the 17th largest storage operator. They have sold over $1 billion in self-storage assets and have lost no investor principal with the average project-level IRR of 33% in the last three years. Right now, you can be one of the first to invest in their next fund at ReliantFund4.com. Fund 4 is a $100 million equity fund with seven properties already identified to close before the end of 2022. If you're an accredited investor, visit ReliantFund4.com to download the investment summary and schedule a call with Reliance experience team. That's ReliantFund4.com, R-E-L-I-A-N-T-F-U-N-D-F-O-U-R.com. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags.
2: Thinking about scaling, growing, protecting your time, would you ever outsource the investor courting or the investor interactions?
1: Actually, I'm trying to decide how to do that right now myself to ramp it up so I have a personal goal to 3x my investor database in the next 12, 18 months. So I think I will outsource. Well, I am outsourcing some of that social media, pushing information out and emails and stuff like that. But I still want to be deeply involved in having a call like this with an investor. That to me is how you get to it is to have a contact point, be it a, a Zoom call or a voice call. And then how do you stay connected? I don't think you can push it out entirely. Even the big shops that have thousands of investors on their database are still reaching out one-on-one periodically to the investor database. In that case, some of them get really big, but I think the best ones are still relationship-driven. We had a disaster on the first property I ever owned. And rather than sending an email to everybody, I called and personally talked to every one of my investors. Maybe it's because I told them about it versus that. You're going to get an email, but here's what the email is going to say. And I wanted to hear the reaction versus doing it the other way around. And I think also know your audience. So boomers like to have voice communication. Millennials may prefer, and I'll I'll generally defer to texting or emailing them just because I don't mean to be negatively stereotyping anybody, but it's just a fact of life.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And to your point, I know Joe Fairless is very accessible to any investor, and I believe he still reaches out to a lot of new investors. So I agree with you. I've seen people try to build a machine that just automates all of the investor acquisition and I don't see them achieving a lot of success doing that. So thank you for reinforcing what I thought was the right way to do it as well. Well,
1: and I can guarantee you, Joe reaches out.
2: Yeah, I know oh, good, is. okay, yeah, good. Um,
1: Maybe not I, every six months, but he definitely reaches out.
2: So in terms of follow-up, how do you follow up with, potential investors, and existing investors?
1: So for me right now, I'm sure you've heard the concept of the funnel, right? The lead's coming in the top and ultimately you want to come down to the bottom of the funnel where they're coming out as an investor. So I really think that process from the top of the funnel to the bottom is really six to nine months. Very few people are going to, well, they may know Joe more than Randy Langendorfer, but are going to know, hey, Randy Langendorfer, and here's his track record, and though it's good or whatever, and just throw 50,000 at me. They're going to want to try to understand me. So it's bringing into the top of the funnel. It's making that first connection. I'm sending out newsletters and I'm trying to be more social media minded to keep people apprised. And then that's the creative side of it is how do you stay engaged with your investor database, especially as it grows? So you have to rely upon some of those tools again. We talked about the mass emails, those things and news updates, but you're trying to keep some of it personal. So there is a personal side of it to us. in my newsletter is always a brief paragraph, personally, what's going on with Randy. Here's what's going on in the business. Properties or assets we're working on. And then in the media. So you're trying to give a little bit of education. And I always have a book to recommend or an article or something like that to read. And then I do create a call list. So when's the last time I talked to Joe or Susie and try to touch base with them at least, at least annually. And other syndication groups, as they grow, they have investor dinners. I know Dan Hanford's one of them, and I'm sure I think Joe does it too, where as he's in a city, he'll get investors in that city together for a dinner, which is a great idea to add the personal touch to it.
2: Randy, how do you acquire new potential investors?
1: Great question. I don't do it enough because I think everybody, no matter how big your database is, even if it's a thousand or a hundred, you're going to have... Several that are, if I could get 20% of my database actually active, that would be great. I'm probably around 10% now. And many of them are repeat customers or clients or repeat investors because they've seen what we've done and liked it. And that's really where you want to get it to. So meetups, I'm always collecting cards. I'm always following up with people. I'm on social media. I need to be on it more, trying to follow up with people, digging into real estate, groups on the internet and trying to connect with people, showing them what I've done. And I create the circles. So I've got professional relationships, with my employer, my past employers, my family. And so I'm really drawing circles around a bigger circle. And then my recent emphasis is how do you really make connections with somebody? And I said, I'm in the compliance and audit space. So I need to reach out to those professional groups where professionals, compliance, and audit people hang out and start building a bridge to some of those people so that six or nine months down the road, they may be interested. I don't have the exact recipe yet for you. Ash, you could probably educate me better on what Joe does on that. But So you're you're just making those connections.
2: Yeah, I love your newsletter idea. I started that about a year ago. I do the same thing. You add a personal paragraph, any milestones or tough lessons learned post-COVID, mindset changes, things like that. So you build yeah. that personal connection. How often do your newsletters go out?
1: I'd like to tell you monthly, that's my objective, but they don't go out every month. I've been consumed with acquisitions here in the last two months. So I haven't sent one out, but I have a goal asked to draft one yet today after this is recorded to send out. So the goal is at least monthly. And then I think my next phase is to accentuate that with other mass distributions, blogs, updates. And I I just saw one the other day from another syndicator that I really liked. He just sent out a single email asking for referrals. I thought that was a great idea. I had never seen that before, but he just said, we got one coming out and I'd really appreciate it if there's anybody in your network. So you're never going to get any if you don't ask. Yeah, Um,
2: don't be afraid to ask. ask. I learned from somebody else I interviewed a long time ago, these words, I need your help. Are very powerful, whether it's an email, a text message, or verbal. When you say to somebody, I need your help, it does something emotionally to that person where they feel obligated or they feel like, I don't know what they feel, but it works.
1: It works. I was at a national conference and I met up with her and she was sitting on the fence of my latest offering and she was back and forth. And I finally grabbed her over a cup of coffee and I said, Susie, I need your help. Just as you said, I would really appreciate if you'd invest in this opportunity. It's solid. Yeah. There you go. Yes, you did.
2: So in terms of filling up people's email boxes, how often is too much?
1: It's a great question too. I don't have the exact secret to that one. There's probably marketers that have much more, but when you see a lot of groups today sending weekly emails, I wouldn't mind doing it. I just don't have the time. I just don't have the bandwidth yet. I strive for that one day, but I think anything more than that would be pretty close to it. And then there's the other one is in the middle of a, a deal raise and somebody keeps hounding you. And then you realize I've been on the receiving end of this where they're emailing me and texting me and you realize they're getting pretty desperate. They're not, they don't, they're not full. <laughs> they're pretty desperate here.
2: I got to share. I had somebody that I met at the best ever conference and I think I got an email from them every second or third day. And I thoroughly enjoyed meeting this person, but I had to stop. I had to, put them in my spam box. Unfortunately, I'll never receive another email from them again. It was just a bit much. And it was all the same content and just...
1: Well, as you know, when you can develop drip campaigns to do that via the MailChimp's and the active campaign tools and stuff, and those are valuable lessons, but there's nothing worse than when you're on LinkedIn and you try to connect with somebody and you get a nanosecond response back and you know it's a bot or an automated string. And so... There's a little tool that one person really told me, yeah, you, you can time those in the automation for at least 24 hours later, which is simple and, and easy to do. And so, yeah, your friend that bugged you with, I'd be curious, was it like five or six days or 20 days that you got informed?
2: Oh, no, it was for the last several months. Oh, and, wow. You know, I, I would say the first maybe five or six emails I read thoroughly, because again, I genuinely enjoyed meeting this person. And it was every little milestone with her kids or her husband. It was just a bit much. And I also don't care for those pretty formatted emails that look like it came from a marketing department. So my newsletters are in pure and simple text, a couple bold highlights, not okay. a bunch of colors, just a simple paragraph format.
1: It works for you. That's all yeah. that matters.
2: Yeah. Because I think we all get inundated with the MailChimp emails, all the pretty formatted emails that subconsciously, at least for me, I just tend to glance over them and move on.
1: And I think like you, I probably get 15 or 20 emails the start of every month from different newsletter people. And I've just got a folder that I put them in. They go to a folder and I do look at them, but I glance at them. So there's another trick in my mind when I'm sending out newsletters. I don't send them out the first of the month or the end of the month. Because I'm getting inundated with them. I notice everybody's doing it the first of the month or they do it the tail end of the month. So I try to send mine out now and it's the mid-month.
2: And then how about day of the week? Is there a better day to send them out?
1: People in my corporate job tell me never send an important email on Monday or Friday. I've never really understood that. I don't really subscribe to that because I'm thinking, really? That leaves three days of the week to do business. But I would say in my mind, midweek is probably better. Either that or like a Tuesday morning. When I use Buffer and try to stack up outbound stuff, that's what I shoot for is a Tuesday morning. And I try to do it first thing in the morning, like 8 a.m. It's released.
2: Awesome. What's the biggest mistake you see people making in real estate?
1: I coach a lot of students and I don't know if it's a mistake, but it's not a get rich quick scheme. Really isn't. It's not a no money down process. You need to have some capital. You need to have friends that have capital. You don't have to have it, but you have to have friends or investors. And then I, my personal opinion is when people try to go too big, too fast, they just start I'll call using the shotgun approach. I'll get in every deal I can and, and be anything I can be. And I'll try to be everything to everybody versus I try to encourage students to develop an investment strategy. I'm going to look in these markets for this class of asset in this price range and become well-versed in that Versus, You know, I just got a friend. He's a syndicator focus on nothing but the Southwest Phoenix in Tucson. He doesn't even live in the state, but that's where, and he's had immense success in a very, all the market in those areas have been really good too, but that's all he does. Tucson and Phoenix.
2: Randy, what is your best real estate investing advice
1: ever? I think for me, it's just simply education that we've talked about and persistence. So wherever you're at in that journey, whether you've been doing this 10 years or 20 years, continue to educate and persistence and honing your game. Because there's always a new aspect of this business to learn.
2: I love it. Randy, are you ready for the best ever lightning round?
1: Oh boy, here we go.
2: (laughs) Randy, what's the best ever book you recently read?
1: The best ever book I read recently, I really like, just pulling it off the shelf here, The Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. Somebody gave it to me or somebody told to me. I have actually read it and have sent it to several of my investors as a reference tool. As new investors start asking questions and stuff, I've bought multiple copies of the book already and sent it to them. It's a great detailed read on multifamily.
2: Randy, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: I like to give back professionally. I said students and I enjoy that coaching aspect of it. I make a few dollars, but it's certainly not the money. Helping people wherever they're at in their journey. And Ash, I think if you're in the business, back to the relationship side of it, I've taken calls and I've talked to a lot of people for free. It's not just for money. It's really... Helping people grow because if you look back on yours, there's so many people that build into Randy along the journey, and I tell people all the time on the call, just pay it forward, give it back to the next person.
2: Yeah, I love that. And Randy, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: I'm real simple. So I have a web page, i n v s t hyphen a r k investark and there's a contact us page in there, and I can give you my email address too in the show notes, Ash, to put it in there. But real easy to get a hold of and happy to talk to anybody about uh, anything real estate.
2: Yeah, I'm dying to read your newsletter, so I'll definitely sign up. Randy, I got to thank you for sharing your journey into real estate, a long career mixed with becoming a real estate professional. Thank you for all the lessons you've passed on to us.
1: It's my pleasure, Ash. Best to you and the audience.
2: Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best-ever day.